0: I'm glad, it's an honor to, uh, to meet you all virtually. And uh, I will just, I don't want to talk about myself too much, but I'll, I'll have to explain who I am, I guess, in the context of, of why it might be relevant, uh, my words might be relevant to you. So my name is David Mendelson. I'm originally from Montreal, Quebec. I made Aliyah to Israel in 19... 19- 94 and uh, from the very beginning i have had a very i guess close relationship with the arab community of israel because i am from montreal quebec uh, and i was raised in under french immersion i was uh i became very interested and very intrigued early on in the concept of language and the idea that how how closely related language is to culture and because quebec is a small as an island of french in the sea of english canada and uh, america the issue of preserving one's culture through language was uh was one of the first things i ever learned in addition to that i was also raised in an orthodox jewish family that and went to Both nursery school, kindergarten, and elementary school, in the yeshiva system where we spoke Yiddish, and translated from uh, from lashon kodesh, which is the Hebrew into Yiddish. And when I was about, when I was in grade six, I asked my father. I said, "This is not the life I want to lead. I don't feel, I don't feel good in yeshiva." And uh, after several months of of forcefully requesting, uh, he eventually gave in, and I got sent to the regular public school system. And so I went from a world of both of Judaism and of Yiddishkeit, speaking Yiddish, into a world where I had to learn to adapt both in terms of French and English. And because I was also uh, considered to be a bit strange, uh, they, uh, I didn't make many friends in the beginning. So, and I had to learn to adapt very quickly to learning not just a language, but learning that whatever somebody said, there was always an ulterior, not an ulterior, but a, another meaning. If someone said, you must come and visit, as they do in the south uh, of the US, y'all come down and visit sometime. It just means it was nice to meet you. If you show up at the door and knock, they'll be very surprised. So these are the kinds of things I picked up on and was very interested in and very intrigued by. And skip ahead many years later, after several Makadea, three Maccadia games, I decided to make Aliyah. So my sporting life, I was also Canadian Champion for seven years. I represented Canada in the worlds, Pan Ams, Olympics. I uh, I uh, I um, uh, I arrived in Israel and made it finished the plan relatively quickly and and decided that I want to study Arabic. I met many Arab Israelis who who felt much more Uh, how would i put this much more i thought they had much more in common with them than i did with many other israelis they had the self self self-deprecating sense of humor the same idea of being a minority within a majority culture understanding the majority culture and yet and yet understanding that they didn't really have a they had a different place in that majority culture so i ended up doing my doctorate on the sociolinguistic aspect of arabic in israel how how the influence of Hebrew is affecting Arabs within Israel, and this so this is this was a uh, and I spent many years investigating both Arabs in the in the West Bank at that time also in Gaza Bedouin Arabs, and, and as well even more in even greater depth Arabs with Israeli citizenship. So that's enough of a preamble about me. I would like to delve immediately, with your permission, into what is an Israeli Arab. So I'm going to try and share my screen because I do have a small PowerPoint. And one moment. Um, Ari, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. I just want to know if you can see this.
1: There's nothing on the screen yet. Are you doing, you did the share screen?
0: I did, yeah. You don't see it? No. All right, one moment. Let me try again. I'll do it one more time. Uh, now it's now working. Now it's coming? OK, good. Yeah. Very good. OK, great. So my first question was, what is our topic for this lecture? Because I find frequently when we, when we have a lecture and we go to it, nobody really understands what it's actually about. So if I asked you, I guess you have to unmute them, but for, let's, let's not for now. I would, I would say we're speaking about, about Arabs with, Arabs who live in Israel. And my first question to you would be, what is that? What is an Arab who lives in Israel? Is that Palestinian? Is that kind of a weird Jew? There, uh, what does it actually mean? And I find the majority of people across the world, including many Jews, don't really understand that there's another kind of Arab in Israel other than Palestinian. And if we're going to start with that, let's start with what happened before 1948. Before 1948 there was about 950,000 Arabs living in the area that we now call Israel. So I find, I find that's a very, when I, when I throw a number like that at you, 950,000, it's I want you to take that number with a grain of salt. Because if I'm coming to you from the right, I will I will try and shrink that number if I can. I'm playing with statistics. And I want to make it seem that there was less, the, the less there were, the better it is for our conscience, maybe. And if I'm coming from the left or from perhaps a pro palestinian perspective, I will try and increase the number. So anytime somebody throws numbers at you, be cautious. But let's say there were about 950,000. When the dust settled, when everything that happened in 1948 happened, there was 156,000 Arabs that stayed in what we consider to be Israel today. Interestingly enough, uh, about 850,000, 160,000 Arabs that left Israel were almost replaced by a similar amount of Jews in the Arab world that actually came over over the next decade or so. And that's that's a number I always found intriguing, how close that number actually was. So usually, the rest of the world, when they speak about the Palestinian situation, the Israeli-Arab conflict, they are preoccupied with the Palestinians. That, eight, that 850,000 or so Arabs that left Israel that are no longer there. You notice that I'm trying to be very careful. I'm, I'm not introducing terms like a war of independence uh, in terms of uh, why, how they left Israel? Were they driven out by soldiers? Did they flee? Were they told that, you know, by, by sympathetic Arab armies that just go clear out for a while, uh, let us kill all the Jews, or we drive them to the sea, then you can come back to your homes? These are all narratives that we've all heard before, and I'm not interested in getting into it. That's a topic for another lecture. What I am interested in is the 156,000 Arabs that stayed behind. At that time, it was about 20% of the population. Today, the number has grown for various reasons to to, uh, about 21% of the population of Israel today. And we want to follow the history of those Arabs because 21% of our population with, with Israeli citizenship is a very large number. And I want you to think about what when what the terms that we use to call them have you noticed until now i haven't said anything i've just said the arabs who stayed behind are they are they arab israelis are they israeli arab are they palestinians so let me start by saying that if you ask any arab israeli today what they call themselves if you go uh, you will have to ask every single member of the family and depending on both their age and in terms of if they're elderly or teenagers or university students, or if they're a mother or a father, you're going to get a different answer. So our, 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 among our best friends in Israel, the ones who just recently came and were part of my son's bar mitzvah, the, the wife, of Nun, who is one of my best friends, calls herself Israeli. She says, I'm Israeli, but the country doesn't want me. Her husband, who is an Fatin who is also a close friend, says I am Palestinian. I belong to a greater Palestinian people but I happen to have Israeli c- citizenship. One of the daughters used to say that she was Palestinian and as she's getting older and closer to university and wanting to blend in with the regular population she's starting to feel and say that she is increasingly Israeli. So it's a very complex question and if you call someone an Israeli Arab they uh they might get i wouldn't say offended perhaps one of the most interesting aspects of my research is that i came as no researcher ever should with an expectation that every arab i was going to meet in israel was going to be incredibly fascinated by my research and would and would say very quickly you know that when it comes to uh to language you know uh language is the most important thing arabic is my culture uh, and it, it's the only thing that keeps me feeling Palestinian. And what I found instead was that the majority of Arabs in Israel don't really worry about that, and they say, "David, we have other things to worry about." So there is a, uh, but they will say that even if they do feel Israeli, that there is a uh, that the, that the the country itself, the, the Jewish aspect, sometimes does not represent them. So they will say something like the Hatikva. The, our, our national anthem, the Jewish national anthem, that says as long as in my heart there is a Jewish soul, I will yearn for Zion. So an Arab with Israeli citizenship will say, how does that song represent me? I want to feel Israeli, they might say. Sometimes they will say the Magen David, the star of David, does not bother me because it's also, it's also an Islamic symbol. So there's, uh, and then other Arabs have suggested to me that they would like to have a national anthem that represents all of them. They say, why can't we have two national anthems? One for all of us, Israeli citizens as a people, and another one that represents only the Jewish people for their Jewish state. There are many, many answers to the same question. You will get those, those same answers and those same discussions from members of the same family. I want to be clear about that from the very beginning. So go back to my sharing PowerPoint. Uh, are you with me now? Is, is it back on? All right.
1: Yeah, <laughs> we can see it.
0: Okay, good. okay. So, so what, what do we, by the way, think about this. Let's spin the question around what do we call Arabs of Israeli citizenship and who is weak? I'm automatically assuming the majority of us in this lecture right now are Jewish. Are we Israeli? So uh if we're Israelis, we will probably call them Israeli Arabs or the Arab sector. If we're uh if we're non-Israelis, but not Jewish, we won't even know that they exist, or we'll just say they're Palestinian. What do the Jews of the rest of the world call them? What do you guys call them? Think about it in your own minds. What's the first term you think of when you say it? Just think about it. And the biggest question is what do they call themselves? So the uh I have met many Arabs that call themselves the Arabs from within, or 1948 Arabs. Uh, And they will also call themselves, as a joke, very sarcastically, as Ashkenazi Arabs. When they say that, they mean, first of all, it, it implies a deep knowledge of our culture, but it also means that they see themselves as somehow being spoiled, that they haven't had to suffer uh the same the same difficulties that palestinians have had they have not had to deal with the losing their land losing their homeland losing their country and i have many not many i have palestinian friends that say there's nothing they would they would there's they do not envy arab israelis pick up
1: another one make me feel better to pick one
0: so, what do they mean by that? When, if you think about it, in the in the greater Arab world, what happens whenever they depict a map of the Middle East that shows Israel? If there are countries that do not recognize Israel, they will just it will just say Palestine. I I have flown Air Jordan and Air Egypt. When they fly over Israel, they won't. The map of the, that they show doesn't say Israel. It it shows some of the cities like Tel Aviv. Akko, or Haifa, but they don't even like to say the name Israel. So what does this mean for Arabs after 1948, after the war? That these 156,000, Israel found itself in a predicament. They have just finally founded and declared their Jewish state. They have a declaration of independence. What do they do with 156,000 Arabs that are still among them? In the Declaration of Independence, it says that Israel is a Jewish state, but also a democracy with full rights for all of its citizens. So they granted, on the basis of this, they granted full citizenship to all Arabs within Israel They are fully Israeli. Now flip your perspective and say to yourself, if the rest of the Arab world cannot even recognize Israel, can't even bring themselves to say the word Israel, even until today, many of these countries. These very same Arabs within Israel who have now accepted an Israeli passport, what does that make them in the eyes of the rest of the Arab world? And if you could speak, if you're unmuted, a lot of you would say the word traitors, and you would be right. As a result of this, they, they, they kind of shrunk in unto themselves in some ways. And from the period of 1948 until 1966, they went through a process that, I guess you could call it Israelification. Many Arabs that I've met from this time period who remember, they say, they'll say they say something like, David, we lost our mother. And when you lose your mother, meaning the Arab culture, the Arab world, what you do, you turn to your adoptive father, which is Israel. And during this time period, during this time period, they, they also started celebrating the Day of Independence, Yom HaTzma'ut. There's a lot of archival footage of Arabs within all kinds of Arab towns across Israel, flying the Israeli flag, singing the And they also, to be honest, they also enjoyed the economic boom that Israel was enjoying. They liked the fact that they could own, they could have electricity, running water, the rights to education, the higher paycheck. There was a lot of, they saw, they saw and the fact that they could travel easily, leave the country. There was a, uh, there was a sense of euphoria. So yeah, keep, keep that in mind. I'm gonna bounce from slide to slide and see where we go with it. When, when I talk about the Arab-Israeli War of 1948, those of you that are, that are looking at this term carefully, you might notice that as a sociolinguist, as someone who's interested with language, I have used a term that if somebody else used with you, you might notice. What am I not calling it? I'm not calling it the, uh, the uh, War of Independence. I'm also not calling it by the Palestinian term, which is the catastrophe or the Nakba. So right away, you see this kind of generic form and, you, and most of you instinctively feel this is not Jewish and the Arabs will know this is not Arab, we call it, the Jews, call it the War of Independence. And this is the image that we, many of us have in our minds. This wonderful moment of great pride, we found our country. Uh, this, uh, and it's a moment that we will, that, that keeps us bound to the country. And I, cannot, I, I personally cannot hear, hear the War of Independence without feeling the sense of incredible emotion and, and, and a depth of, of, uh, of feeling and attachment. What is it for um, an Arab Israeli or a Palestinian? For a Palestinian, it's definitely this Nakba, the catastrophe, the day in which over 850,000 Arabs left their homes and lost their homeland. So what does this mean for the Arabs with Israeli citizenship who stayed behind? On the day that the Nakba is commemorated, do they celebrate the day of independence or do they mourn the nakba these are questions that you have to think about and i uh, and they themselves wrestle with and have and feel very and you will get no matter who you ask you will get an emotional answer in uh, 1949 after the dust settled There was discussion of how to how to arrange a ceasefire or an armistice line and uh, a fellow by the name of Ralph Bunch was largely responsible for taking the disparate armies the different factions and helping draw the armistice line that we know today today as the green line. This is going to become very relevant in our conversation a bit later on because because the division basically separated what we call mainland Israel, eventually with the other side, with with Transjordan in the beginning, and eventually the, uh, the what we what we come to know today as the Palestinians, the West Bank, and and this division essentially also kept the Arabs with Israeli citizenship from 1948 or 1949 until 1967 from actually having any kind of contact with each other. So while the Palestinians live basically a life of, I guess you can say, uh, a farmer's life. Uh, I don't want to use the word peasant pejoratively, but I mean basically without the rights to education, without the ability to move freely, At the same time, arab Israelis just across the green line. That's why the green line is so important. We're uh, we're learning, we're basically gaining education, but at the same time, losing their Arabic, their Arab culture. How and why? Well, one of them is specifically my area of interest. They were losing their language in many ways. As a result of studying in the, in the Israel, education system, from grade three on every Arab-Israeli has to start learning Hebrew. Now Arabic is a very complicated language because from village to village the dialects that they speak are, differ so, so starkly that an Arab in, in Israel may have problems communicating with an Arab in Egypt or Lebanon. They can still speak, but it gets more difficult. But the Arabic that's spoken in Saudi Arabia and the Levant is totally is, a, is basically a different language of Arabic than spoken in Tunisia or Morocco. The, the dialects differ so strongly, basically, that one must learn a formal Arabic called Fusa, which is the Arabic that all Arabs learn across the Arab world, to be able to communicate with each other. The Arabs in Israel are, we're so busy and are so busy today mastering the uh, uh, Hebrew that they stay with their Amiya, with their spoken Arabic, and they don't really necessarily master the Fusa in, the in the way that the Arabs in other countries do. So I have, I have friends, including uh, hopefully my friend that will join me online today. We'll see if she's joined us yet. I see I have notifications from her, one moment. Um, Uh, that that tell me that their that their their Arabic in Israel has become so permeated with Hebrew. I have a collection of over three hundred common words, including ice cream. Uh, how to say, okay, interesting. I can go on with with uh, for traffic lights that they don't know the word in Arabic for. And if an Arab if an Arab in Israel, an Israeli Arab, will go and travel and meet his first his or her first cousin in the, in Ramallah, they will not be able to understand each other sometimes because of how much their language has changed in just just from 49 till today so they they are they are they are in some ways very isolated both in the positive and in the negative so uh, I, here's i the green line i just wanted to go so from 49 to 66 we go through a period of time that that many arabs call the honeymoon period because the Arabs remaining in Israel were granted citizenship and full rights, they uh, they felt this was a uh, this was wonderful, and they were, as I said they were benefiting from the economic boom. Yet, at the same time, Israel imposed martial law on all Arabs within Israel from the very beginning. They said, "We just fought a war with these people. How can we? How can we? How can we risk giving them absolute?" freedom of movement without without some some level of scrutiny. Still, in 1966, martial law was lifted. And from this point on, Arab citizens on paper were granted full, full rights, the same rights as Jewish citizens under law. And you should also know that Arabs with Israeli citizenship have voted in the very first parliament of Israel. And there has been Arab Knesset members who have served in office since the very beginning as well what about the army do arabs in israel serve in the army i'm surprised at how many people ask this question and get an emphatic no the uh, under israeli law every arab must not every arab every citizen of israel must serve in the army the males for 3 years and the females for 2 years and in 1956 Moshe Sharet, who was then the Minister of Defense, went from village to village all across Israel and asked every mukhtar, every head of every Arab village, would they be willing to be drafted, have a draft on the mails? And and the vast majority said yes. And, And when Sharet brought this back to the Knesset, Moshe Dayan said, we cannot risk having them trained in our intelligence and our ways of fighting. Let's make it voluntary. So for all Muslim Arabs and Christian Arabs in Israel, the issue of the army is, is something, is, is, a, is a question of, if you, if you really want to, you can, you can request, but you don't have to, and the, and the vast majority do not. Having said that, we keep saying Arabs in Israel, Arabs in Israel. What is an Arab? So if you actually look it up, the actual definition of Arab is someone whose mother tongue is Arabic and by that definition so i guess many iraqi jews egyptian jews moroccan jews also fall under that category in terms of culture and language and i guess you can say music and every in many 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 dimensions but for the purposes of of our discussion we're going to talk about the arabs who are not jewish and having said that what are they i want to see if i here's a couple of slides by the way of of arabs in israel this is from Um-ul-Saham. Uh, singing the Hatikvah in uh, 1956, I think, and other Arabs across Israel, this is Bakal Garbia, uh, the town where my friends are from, uh, joining in a uh, Yom Ha'atma'ut celebration, and this is a more modern picture, probably one of our last three recent elections of uh, Arab citizen using her rights to vote, and uh, And in this process from 1967, sorry, from 1949 to 1966, we had the Israelification of Arabs. Now from 1966 to 1967, something happened. What happened that brought the Arab Israelis for the first time out of their bubble of, of, of non-Arabists, non non-Arabis, their, their, their their bubble of not belonging to the Arab world, and their whole issue of creating an identity for themselves? that was based on belonging, on, on Israeli citizenship, yet not being Jewish. There was, there was a, uh, there was a struggle going on. And uh, the struggle is, is difficult uh, to, to explain that. Let me, let me try it this way. The uh, many, the majority of Arabs across Israel were farmers. And when Israel was founded. Large swaths of land that were either public or hadn't been, or or absentee claimed an absentee law status because Arabs had left their homes and not claimed them, they were turned over either to kibbutzim, turned into kibbutzim, moshavim, and uh, and a lot of the land that Arabs were used to farming, which just wasn't there anymore. And many of the many of the uh, of the Arabs turned from their from their living as a farmer living off the land for this reason and the reasons of just making a higher paycheck to, uh, to becoming builders and in fact many of the roads and buildings and all, all, all kinds of construction all across israel was done on arab israeli labor the women arab women basically in the same time period who had been accustomed to helping their husbands pick the uh, pick the crops uh, prepare the stuff for market Suddenly, they themselves also were were uh, deprived of their previous cultural attachment and their and their meaning of their reasons for existence, basically, and they were kind of relegated to their own home, and this this caused uh, a tremendous change within the home within the home environment. You have you have uh, there was increased rates of depression, there was increased rates of suicide, violence at home, and this idea of suddenly of, of education, the fact that women also had to have it, also caused a lot of, I guess you would say, tumult and fraction, and fractiousness within the home. And these are cultural changes that, that it's, it's kind of difficult for a Westerner to appreciate perhaps. I'll, I'll explain it with another small story. There, is a, uh, there are five schools across Israel Called Yad Bi Yad, which means in Hebrew and in Arabic "hand in hand." And in these five schools, the teachers teach both Arabic and Hebrew. There's one Arabic teacher, one Hebrew teacher, and they teach simultaneously. And uh, and they they are taught both the aspects of religion for uh, in terms of Islam, Judaism, Christianity for Druze, and uh, equally. And, I, and I'm fascinated by these schools. I bring, I bring visitors there all the time. And I recently asked one of the teachers, Amna, I noticed that she'd been a teacher there for 15 years and that she never sent her children there. And when I asked her why, because is a very high level of education that she would not have access to in the, Arab, in the Arab sector, she said, David, I believe in peace, but I believe in a parallel peace. She said, "If I send my children to your, to this school, they will pick up from from the Jewish kids the fact that they can leave home whenever they want. The girls can wear uh, can wear skirts, short skirts, and show their legs. They'll talk about sex before marriage. They'll lose their appreciation for their elders, for customs." She said, "The Jewish kids, she said, are learning all of our ways. They're learning how to dance the depth, they learning how to cook better." She was making jokes. She said, "I prefer that my children." first learn what, who they are as Arabs before they, start, before they start getting influenced by the other side. She said, when, when, they, when, they have, when they have had enough understanding of what Arab culture means, then I would allow them to start mixing in the Jewish sector. So I found that a very, and by the way, the majority of Arabs do not feel this way. M- most of them Send their, would prefer to send their kids at a very young age to Jewish schools because they think the, the level of education is higher. But this is, this is one aspect to consider about in terms of the loss, the, the loss of culture. So let's go back to our question of the types of Arabs that are in Israel. And what is an Arab? So we talked about the majority, 80%, which are Arab Muslims, Arab Sunni Muslims. And then we have about 9% that are Christian Arabs. The Christian Arabs are totally different culture they are typically the the uh, the most successful in terms of matriculation education uh, of any of any Israeli citizen including Jews they're always at the top of the matriculation uh, results at the same time if you ask them how they feel about their own identity they identify more strongly with Palestinian than many of the Muslims do the issue as to why we can discuss later and then we have another 9% of the Arab population that are Druze, D-R-U-Z-E-Z-E, sorry, Americans. And, uh, and they actually have practiced a secret religion called Dini Takia, which essentially says they're not Muslim and they're not Jewish, they're something else. And they have a code that says, it's made up of three parts. Number one, every, this, every Druze, must faithfully serve under whatever government they find themselves. Number two, every Druze must faithfully take care of any other Druze under any circumstance. And number three, everything was pre- everything is predestined. So when I asked my friend in uh Daliat al-Kamel, Amir, I said, What happens if you have to fight against an Arab from against a Druze from Syria as a result of the 1940? Eight War you are in Israel and you feel like you have to serve faithfully under Israel. You are drafted. You are an Israeli soldier They're among they're among our best soldiers period And I said what happens if there's a war and you have to fight against a syrian Jews who is under the same code as you are They have to faithfully serve as a syrian And he said well That's when rule number one takes precedent. I have to fight For my country no matter what support my country in every single way and he said, and number three, it's all predestined Any, it was meant to happen. So they're they a very fascinating subculture. I've spent a lot of time with them. And they're, 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 their religion is so secret that even a Druze is not initiated unless they ask to do. So you can, live, you can live a Druze your entire life and die and be considered a good person and yet never be initiated into your own religion. You have to request it. When you make the request, the, the hierarchy goes, uh, it's the same for, for male or female to get to the highest, the highest ranking possible. And they also believe that there is the same number of Jews at any given time, everywhere in the world, and they're all reincarnated. So even, even, so even those Druze that, that fall in battle and uh, and the Israeli government, we we honor we honor our the uh, our soldiers that fall in the line of duty, with beautiful with these tombs and on Remembrance Day we go and we we remember them. The That's Druze awesome. recognize that Israel is trying to trying to honor them, so they don't they don't treat the human body as anything more than a mere vessel, because they believe they're going to be reincarnate, reincarnated anyway. So they, they they dust off their tombs just for the sake of Yom Yom Hazikaron Remembrance Day. And they appreciate the honor that's being done to them. The other Arab Israelis, other the Muslims and the Christians, uh, the ones who choose to do the army, they they uh, it's considered it's considered to be problematic because of their of this confused identity, are they Israeli or Palestinian? And I will talk if we have time. I will talk more about this later. So, we spoke about the Green Line, and now we're talking about, now we've reached the Six-Day War, it's called, by the way, the Six-Day War, is there any other term that we have for it, that we know of? I think the entire world, am I wrong, Ari? We all say the Six-Day War. Is that that correct? So, the Arab world does not like that term at all. And why, why do you think that might be the case? Again, we're speaking about sociolinguistics six-day war six days implies it was over in a jiffy israel was so powerful and so strong they were able to humiliate these these other armies egypt and syria and jordan in just six days so they call it yoma naksa the setback and uh, hey, David, just a heads
1: yes. up i have Fula on she keeps coming on. okay oh, great. so if you want to involve
0: her you can... is she is she muted or not
1: I unmuted her, but she keep, she must have bad reception.
0: I keep seeing her come on and off, so just oh, that's too bad. Because I would love to, I'd love her to speak. That'll be very interesting. Uh, can you see if we can get? Uh, f- can you unmute her, Fula? Can you hear me? No, she keeps coming Hello? in and off. Every time she comes in, I unmute her, and then she disappears. So I'll oh, try to bad. give you- Okay, thank can you. you hear me? Uh, I I hear you, Fula. Can you hear me?
1: Fula, can yeah, you hear I can me can hear you. or not? Uh, I'm trying. Yeah, yeah i can hear but i'm trying
0: to turn on my camera but it's not working okay well uh, yeah. uh, i would like to introduce you to uh to all of you to my friend fula she was originally a student of mine i guess about six or seven years ago she she, she went to uh israel's only arabic speaking college uh, slash university up north i i uh, and we have maintained a friendship uh, over the years, and I asked her to come online to speak with you today because she has some, uh, she has an incredible story of her own. I want, I want her to share with you. Uh, first of all, Fula, uh, welcome, and you want to introduce yourself a little bit to the group. Can you hear me? I don't think you. Yeah, hear me already, no? of course. Uh,
1: hello everyone. Uh, when I, when yeah. I first met, so I'll, I'll, I'll start off by saying, yeah. everyone. No, I can, I can hear. Do you
0: hear me? Okay. When I, when I first met you, Fula, you introduced yourself very proudly to my students, to the kivanin students, as a, uh, as, uh, do you remember what you said to them? How you identified yourself when they asked you, are you Israeli? Are you Arab? Uh, how do you feel about religion? Do you remember what you said to them? I don't think she has good reception already. You
1: know. Like, actually, I know that I really developed my. Ah, you can. It, does anyone hear me?
0: Yeah, we can hear you, Fula. Can you hear? Can you hear me?
1: Yeah, I can hear. you. Okay. Can you hear David? He asked you a question of how you introduced yourself yeah, to people in the Hibunini group. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I heard the question. I was I was answering, and so yeah. I, I it's really. I really, all this in my idea how to identify myself has developed over the years. I remember, to identify myself as, uh, first of all, as a Muslim, and as a, an Arab, and as an Israeli Arab. Uh, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and uh, be, and uh, it's really like for, I was at that time I was uh, on my junior year in uh, high school. It was my last year in uh, high school, and uh, I remember going to the um, to, to the have University to the company program with uh, David and the other mates. And I and I remember how I was not uh, I I had my own my own perspective uh, and. Uh, my own uh, like
0: my own idea of
1: like how to like uh, introduce myself and to, to introduce my nationality um, but it's really got it developed over the years and i would uh, really love to share it with you guys uh, um, um, and uh, yeah so uh, if you if you would like to ask me like some specific questions it would be better
0: well, first, first of all, Fula, when I first met you, if you, uh, I asked you before before you came on on this uh, on this talk, if you minded me saying that when I first met you that you were wearing the veil, the hijab, and when you when you introduced yourself as a proud Muslim, you you explained that this was also part of it for you, and I want before before I ask you the question, I want to tell to explain to the group that as after, uh, after 1967, after the Six-Day War, the Israeli Arabs became face-to-face for the first time with the concept of what it meant to be something else, a Palestinian. And, it, and, and for a while, there was a kind of an embracing or, a, or at least an alternative to accepting their, uh, a role that many of them felt were, was basically just second-class citizens, Suddenly they could be they could proudly say they were Palestinian and yet as the years went on uh, there was a they, the uh, there was a sense that they weren't fully Palestinian and they weren't fully Israeli and as a an result if you ever study the graffiti in the in the areas uh, where the Palestinian Authority is ruling the graffiti will say things like free Palestine. Uh, from the sea to the sea, Palestine will be free. All these slogans. And if you go to the Arab-Israeli uh, towns and cities and villages, they'll say things like, think of Muhammad. Uh, you know, what, what, what would God want of you? And I found, uh, and I've asked many of my Muslim friends this, that, that they are much more religious and much more, they wear, they wear the veil and the hijab much more than Palestinians do. And when I ask them why, they say it's another, another way of claiming an identity that is not Israeli. Fula, would you, would you agree with that? Or what do you think about that? Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: actually, yeah, I would uh, agree with that. As much as the hijab is a symbol of, uh, like of the uh, Islamic religion, it's also, uh, it's also like sending a message that I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not a Jew. I'm not an. Uh, I'm, I'm an Arab. I, like I, I, it's it's a really common thing that many people think of uh, like think about like that here in the in the in, in Israel like the Israeli Arab. Um, and actually, in in the last year, I had the uh, I had the chance to meet uh, someone here in the university, in Tel Aviv University. I did not introduce myself probably. Uh, probably I'm uh, I'm studying at Tel Aviv University, political science and library studies. So and I'm, I'm living in Tel Aviv can, uh, currently. So uh, last year I had the chance to meet um, uh, some girl that she studied studies in uh, Tel Aviv University and she explained for me for me that she uh, wearing the hijab all the that she's wearing, not as it's, as much as it's related to. Um, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, as much as it's uh, connected to uh, to the idea that she wants to present that she's an Arab to people, who know, love to see her and recognize her as an Arab in uh, here in Israel. So uh, yeah, it's a really common thing, and uh, I remember at the, the beginning of my like of the days I wore the hijab. I, like besides the idea that I was really religious at that time, I also, I, I also like I, I I connected to that idea that I want to be a, to be recognized as, as an Arab, uh, as and to be more specific, as a Palestinian. So. Uh, yeah it's a really common thing there's there are there are a relationship between uh, uh, the the religion and the ID and uh, it's uh, it it, it, and like all 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 these things are combined together in the in the way that uh, our people here in Israel uh, identify themselves
0: so, so Pula, if you uh, uh, if you don't mind me asking, then uh, I know you don't. I asked you before if I could ask this. When uh, when I when, I, when uh, one of the times when you came to meet me in Jerusalem, we have been friends for about five or six years at this point. You said to me, David, when I get off the train, you might not recognize me. Do you remember why?
1: Yeah, because uh, I took off the hijab that day. That day, that time. It that, yeah.
0: so the question I have for you then because you are I it's a, as uh, Fula is one of the strongest uh, women that I've ever met uh, she's uh, she and uh, and she's one of only two or three people I know that have ever done this move because to take off the hijab is basically uh, risking absolute absolutely being cut off from your society it's something that's just not Done. Am I correct? Willa? Uh,
1: yes. Yes. It's uh, At the time that I took off my hijab, it was not uh, acceptable at all. I. I faced some. Uh, I faced some, I like. I faced some struggles with uh, uh, some people. Like. Um, Basically, friends of me that were shocked that I took this, this decision you know, of taking on this. But uh, fortunately, I have a really great mother that she supported me. But in general, in general, in general, it's really difficult and to any to any girl that she wearing the hijab and usually in our community, go to me
0: I, uh, I, I didn't catch the, the last part, but uh, I, I, I'm going to let you jump back in as soon as the connection is better. But I want to illustrate uh, what the hijab means with, it, with another story that Fula might not know, but she knows all the people involved in the story. In the, in the high school where Fula studied, I also volunteered for many years with, uh, with the English department, with the education system, and all of the female teachers in the school, all of them, wear the hijab, wear the veil except for one woman. Her name is, is and was Hanin. She's, uh, uh I'm still friendly with her, and she looked like a model. She was beautiful, long flowing hair, elegant, and whenever I would bring my American, North American students, uh, graduate students from Giva Chaviva to the school, they would assume, and I want you all to think about this yourselves who are listening, that Khanin was the emancipated woman free, of, free from the shackles of a patriarchal society, and that all the other women were subjected to a typical patriarchal system where they were forced by the males to wear it. So when they spoke to Hanin a bit longer and they got to know her, they're all very, they're very, very honest. They found out that her husband is actually an Israeli judge, an Arab. He's an Arab, but he's an Israeli judge. And he found it embarrassing that his wife uh, would wear the hijab and look like just a typical Arab uh, housewife. And he didn't allow her to wear the hijab. So it basically uh, flew in the face of what many of of, of many of the assumptions that my, that my North American graduate students had. And they found out that my friend Afnan, who does wear the hijab, who, as I told you before, is one of my closest friends, is very close to being what I would call an atheist, but, uh, and has absolute uh, freedom of any decision that she wants to make in her life, including if she wanted to take it off, her husband would have to get used to it. He wouldn't have a choice. her whole society would be shocked as what happened with Fula and it's just essentially a, a, a sign it's a sign that you belong it's a choice that you have made you belong to a specific society for a certain reason it's a choice